Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter number 2. Ephesians chapter number 2. And please don't wait until we begin reading the verses before you tune in. Listen carefully to what I say by way of introduction. You know, I think too often we assume that all churchgoers understand the plan of salvation. You know, they go to church. We assume, well, you know, they know how to get saved, but the fact of the matter is they don't. And then I think sometimes we assume that everyone who understands it believes it, and they haven't. And we've recently seen evidence of that, and I suspect that we probably, like most churches, need to see even more. Because people are more confused than you think they are. More confused than what they're willing to admit. And if there's any section in all of the Scriptures that that should clear up the confusion about this, it's here in Ephesians chapter 2 in these first ten verses. Now, I want to remind you that Paul is writing to a church. He's not writing to inmates in prison or people that are on skid row. He's not writing to people that are out in the deep, dark jungle somewhere. He's writing to professing Christians. And that tells me that this message needs to be delivered in every church in the land. In in other words, it's something that we need to hear, although we've already been saved Because even if you're saved, you need to explore the riches of God's grace. And that is a great sea of truth. And every drop is worth more than pure gold. In these verses, we see God's plan for the plight of man and His power to save. If you look at verse 12, you see here that those having no hope and without God in this world can be reconciled to God, redeemed from the penalty of sin, rescued from the power of sin, and raised up together to sit with Christ in heavenly places. And so we ought to never get tired of hearing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because the Bible says it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. So... Those that have been moved to the gospel should never be moved away from the gospel, but should be moved in the gospel that they might be highly motivated to carry the gospel to those that have never heard. Now, with that in mind, I want you to notice three things that, that Paul points out in these verses this probably ought to be three sermons instead of one, but uh, but it's just going to be one this morning, and I promise I'm not going to keep you any longer than an hour and ten or fifteen minutes. Or no, <laughs> chapter two, verse number one. I want you to notice these first three verses. Paul speaks about awful guilt. And he says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, 
wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation, that is, our manner of life, in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. You know, contrary to what most people say, they really don't want to know the truth about themselves. There are people, you know, that during the course of a sermon, somebody might say, that's it, preacher, tell them, you know, that's it. Give us the truth and, you know, all kinds of different phrases, you know, agging the, the preacher on. And by the way, that helps. That, that does good. It's like, you know, like an old friend of mine many years ago, he said, you know, it makes me feel like charging hell with a water pistol. And, and so it, it does encourage the preacher and that's good. But, you know, a lot of times, a lot of times we talk about wanting to hear the truth, but in reality, we don't want to hear the truth about ourselves. And, uh, no, and by the way, that's why people never change. A lot of people stay the same year after year. They're never any different than they were because they're not listening to the truth of God's Word. Now, if you're the exception to that, I want to show you the truth about the natural man. This is true of every single person here. If you're unsaved, this describes you. If you are saved, this is a description of the kind of a person that you used to be. But it's true of everyone. And notice Paul says, first of all, in verse number 1, he tells us that the natural man is dead and wretched. He said, notice that they're dead in trespasses and sins. Did you know that dead people are walking among us? And I'm not talking about zombies. Dead people are walking among us. Maybe you're thinking, well, dead people can't walk. Oh, yeah, they can, really. They can. I mean, dead people can walk, they can eat, they can drive automobiles, they, they can attend church, they can teach Sunday school, they can sing in the choir, they can do all of those things. And dead people are among us because if you are unsaved, you are spiritually dead. You say, well, what does that mean? It means that you are separated from God. That's, you know, that's the most terrible, awful thing about death, just as physical death is when your soul leaves the body, spiritual death has to do with the fact that your spirit is separated from God. And that's why Jesus talks about you must be born again. There has to be a new birth that is a spiritual birth to give you life. You'll remember that God said to Adam, He said, in the day that you eat thereof, He said, you're going to die. Well, he didn't die then. He lived over 900 years. He didn't die that day physically, but he died spiritually. At that precise moment, he was separated from God. And listen, the moment you reach the age of accountability in this world, you are dead spiritually, dead and wretched. You know, we can do everything under the sun to make ourselves more presentable. 
You know, we can comb our hair and shine our shoes, and you ladies can put on your makeup. Maybe some of you guys do. I don't know. But uh, you can fix yourself up and get all spruced up, put on your Sunday go-to-meeting clothes, and, uh, and look the best you can, but you're still dead. Spiritually, you're still dead until you've been born again. But look, he doesn't stop there. Uh, he says, not only are we dead and wretched, but look at verse number 2. He said, they walked according to the course of this world. They're dead and wretched, but they're defiled and worldly. Now, they might be in step with the times, but they're out of step with God. Notice here, they walked, that's talking about their manner of life again, the course of their life, they walked according to the course of this world. That is, the world is setting their agenda They are following along. Whatever the fashion is, you know, that's what they do. They want to be in step with the world. And their conduct is patterned by the world rather than by the Word of God. And these people cannot pray. You remember how the Lord taught us to pray? He says, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Well, they can't pray that way. Why? Because their will is in step with the world rather than the Word of God. So they're dead, they're wretched, they're defiled and worldly. But notice verse 2 again. We see they're disobedient and wayward. He said, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in them, the children of disobedience. That speaks about being devilish. Because there's no doubt about who he's talking about here. He, he describes Satan, notice, as the prince of the power of the air. And you'll remember the Bible tells us that Satan is the god of this world. Unbelievers are blinded by Satan. They're bound to their sins by Satan. And Paul said to Timothy that they're taken captive by him at his will. Taken captive by him. At his will. They are in the snare of the devil. Now, you're here today and you say, well, I tell you what, I'm not a Christian, but I have my own free will and I do as I please. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Nobody's going to dictate my manner of life. I'm going to live as I please and nobody's going to change that. And they don't even understand they are in bondage. You say, well, don't they, don't they have a free will? Absolutely. They have a, they have a free will, but although they have the will, they do not have the power nor the desire, actually, to do what they should. They're living in bondage. So many times you hear people say, well, you know, that person doesn't have to be an alcoholic or they don't have to be a druggie. You know, it's all their fault. And, of course, by the way, I mean, it is. They are to blame for the condition that they're in. That's true because God made a provision for us to get out of that wretched condition, and they don't do it. So they are at fault. They're to blame. They're sinners in the sight of God. He holds them accountable. But you need to understand what we're dealing with when we talk about unsaved people because they are in bondage. It might be some of you have children here. 
and uh, those children are living in bondage and you have appealed to them over and over again, you can stop if you want to. Just look at what you're doing. You're wrecking your life. You're, 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 you're just making a mess out of everything. And it, it's all because you just don't want to change. Let me tell you from experience, that's not true. That's not true. It might be they want to be different and they want to change much more than you imagine. But you've got to understand they are enslaved. And that's true of every unsaved person. You see, as I often say, the devil doesn't care whether you go to to hell from a bar stool or a church pew. He can probably get you there easier from a church pew. Because you kind of feel good about yourself. You know, after all, you attend church. You're not as bad as those people down there on the bar stool. You're not out here parked in a car somewhere shooting up dope. You don't do stuff like that. You're not as bad as those people. Look, you might not be as bad as they are, but you're as bad off as they are. Because you're dead. And you are depraved. You are defiled. And you're disobedient to God and wayward. And then look at verse 3 again. Notice not only that, but they are doomed, doomed to wrath, the children of wrath. You know, whenever you put all of these things together, folks, it accounts for what we see in this wicked world. You don't have to look any further than this to find an explanation for the current corruption that is in the world. This explains why people do what they do. Man's not as God created him to be. Something awful, something terrible has happened from that original creation when God looked it upon all of his handiwork and pronounced it good. Something terrible happened, and that was the fall of man. When Adam and Eve fell, and as a result of that, sin entered into the world by one man and, and also death by sin, and so that all of sin to come short of the glory of God. You see, we're all guilty. By nature, we're all guilty. And you can join every church in the county and be baptized so many times that all of the tadpole know you by your first name. And, and you can be ever so religious and do religious works and good deeds and all of that. But until you've been born again, this is a perfect description of each and every one of you. Now that is an awful guilt, a terrible indictment against the person. But now I want you to notice verse 4. And here we see Paul speaks about amazing grace. Notice how this section begins. But God. That changes everything. Now he changes the subject from guilt to grace. And because of that, it gives hope to the helpless. But God, I challenge you to just go through your Bible. Take a concordance and go through your Bible and look up all of the times that phrase is used. It'll give you, it'll give you ammunition against the devil. It'll give you entertainment for your soul as you read and meditate upon that. But God, think about that. All of these things I've just mentioned, we are we are living in rebellion against God. We are defiled. We, we are deplorable. We are doomed to the wrath of God. But God, God 
provided our need. Look at verse number 5 now. It says, But God, who is rich in mercy for His great love, wherewith He loved us, even, now notice, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved. Isn't that amazing, folks? Remember Romans 5, 8? But God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for the ungodly. I'm so glad that God didn't say to me, as soon as you get out of those honky-tonks and bars, I'll save you. As soon as you start treating your wife and your children right, I'll save you. As soon as you, you know, become the person that you ought to be, I'll save you. I'll love you. No, God loved me just like I was. You see, God loves you when nobody else does. God loves you when you do not deserve anything whatsoever. And notice there's nothing said here about us making ourselves presentable because in the first place we could never do that. We can't do anything to earn our acceptance with God. You see, here we are living in rebellion against God with the need to be reconciled to God, and we can't do anything to bring that about but God. But God can. And God did. God provided the means. In verse 6 of chapter 1, says, He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. He made us accepted. Look, folks, you'll never understand the glory of of Christ's sacrifice until you understand something about the greatness of God's grace. And you'll never do that until you realize how sinful you are. That's why there is no hope for those that are self-righteous, those people that see themselves as, for whatever reason, as deserving of something from God. They'll never turn to the grace of God and trust the Son of God, how grateful we ought to be. And whenever you look at all of this and you have to ask yourself, you know, how horrible, how terrible this is, and uh, why would a holy God show any interest in us at all? Why wouldn't God, the same God who spoke the worlds into existence, just speak us into oblivion? Why wouldn't God say enough of these wretched souls, enough of these deplorable sinners? This is not what I intended, and kapoof, we're all gone. God had the power to do that. And by the way, God not only had the power to do it, since God is holy, He would have been just in doing so. But the greatness of His love would not allow him to do that. And instead, instead, because of his grace, he made a way that we could be accepted with him. And that's what he talks about. Notice beginning in verse number 8. He says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship. That means you are His masterpiece. We're His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained 
that we should walk in them. You know, you, you could ask a thousand people, how do you get from your house to heaven? And you'll hear all kinds of different answers, mostly wrong. You can search all of the libraries of the world and read all that man has ever written, and you will never discover anything better than this regarding how man can be reconciled to God. I mean, this is an accurate guide. This is the absolute truth, and it ought to give us cause for rejoicing that God, who was great in His love toward us, prepared a way that we could be accepted rather than rejected. And you know, knowing that truth gives us great peace in our heart. Because I don't have to, I don't have to wonder each and every day, well, have I been good enough that God will accept me? You know, I mean, what if I died today? Would, would God let me into His heaven? I don't have to wonder about that. I, I never do wonder about it. I don't know why any professing Christian would worry about that or wonder about that. Because that has been settled. The old account was settled long ago. Long ago down on my knees. Amen. The old account was settled. My sin debt was paid for by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is no reason now for God to reject me. And it's not based upon my goodness, not based upon anything that I've ever done, but it's purely because of God's grace that now I can have acceptance with God. But I remember what I said? But although God loves us, although the grace of God is sufficient to save us, we never turn to God for help until what? Until we realize our sinful condition. And that's where most people are at. And they've got this idea that they can go on fooling mom and dad and everybody else. You know, they've told everybody they're a Christian. They were baptized. They joined the church. And they think they've got everybody fooled. And maybe they do, but you can't fool God. And throughout all of the ages, man has looked for some solution to the problems that, that we have. You know, how do we deal with this? How do we deal with that? Oh, we got a drug epidemic. What are we going to do about that? You know, drunk driving is killing so many people uh, every year. What are we going to do about that? And, and we find ourselves in this quandary, and, and even with all of our think tanks and all of these highly educated people, we can't ever seem to come up with a solution to the problem. And the reason we don't is because we are dealing with the fruit of the problem instead of the root of the problem. And the root of the problem is that the natural man does not have a relationship with God the natural man is living in bondage to Satan, and there is absolutely nothing that man can do to change that. God is the only hope for sinful man. Now, here's the facts that form the foundation of our faith. There's seven things mentioned here in these verses about salvation. Verse 1 and verse 5, notice, salvation is unto life. It's unto life. When you're saved, you receive life. Life that you didn't have before. You become a new creature, the Bible says. All of a sudden, those who were spiritually dead are now alive 
By the way, that's why Jesus talked about if any man believe in me, he shall never die. Whoa, how can that be? We pass the cemetery, you know, on the going down the road, and we look over there, and there's all of those graves. We know people keep dying, and we know a lot of those folks, you know, they were our friends and relatives. We know they were Christians, and they died. What was he talking about, that they shall never die? Well, you see, you're thinking of the body, and he's speaking about the soul. You see, the real you is not is not the body that is seated there in, in the chair. That, that's not the real you. That'd be like driving down the, the street I live on and look at the house and say, oh, there's Brother Stone. Well, that's not me. That's a house. It's made out of brick and wood and stuff like that. And, you know, that's not me. I live in that house. So when we look at one another, we need to understand that the real person lives within. The, the body is, look, that, that's just, that's where you live. That's your, your earthly home. And you're going, listen, you're going to die physically, but if you've been born again, to be absent from the body is to be what? Hey, doesn't get any better than that, does it? Present with the Lord, the very split second that you die, you enter into the presence of the Lord because you have what kind of life? Eternal. How long is eternity? Oh, well, it's never ending. Amen? It's never ending. So we have life. Salvation is unto life. It's, it's more than God just reforming you. It's more than Him just getting you out of the bar room. More than just making you a better person. It's giving you life that you've never had before. You become somebody that you've never been the moment that you get saved. The day I got saved, my wife had a husband that she never had before. Now, I'm the only one she's ever married. I'm the only one, you know, with our names on the, on the, on the uh, marriage certificate. That, but uh, she got a new husband that day because I suddenly become somebody I've never been. I got a new life. Salvation is unto life. But look at verse number 2 and 3. It's from sin. Notice this awful description that, that I read at the beginning. But notice the first part of verse 2. Wherein in time past. In time past. What's he doing? He's talking to Christians about their former condition. He's saying this is what you used to be. This is the person that you were before you got saved. But what? But God, and now you're different than that. You're not the same person you used to be. There is a deliverance not only from the penalty of sin, but God begins delivering us from the power of sin. We who have lived all of our lifetime in the shackles of sin, in bondage to Satan, all of a sudden the shackles fall and now we are free. Now there is victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us and gave Himself for us. Now, the Bible says, sin shall not have dominion over you. Amen? It, look, salvation is unto life, but it's from sin. And there's no reason for anybody to believe that you have life if you're still living in those sins. And then notice in verse number 6, salvation is in Christ. 
He raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places. Notice, in Christ Jesus. Jesus himself said, you remember there in John chapter number 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father but by me. Amen? Boy, I mean, that is as exclusive as it gets. Somebody says, that is so narrow-minded. You get on national TV or you get on the radio or anywhere else and you start talking about there's only one way to heaven, that if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to die and go to hell. You'll bring down the wrath of the world on you quick. Because most people don't believe that. They think there's a lot of different ways to heaven, but the Bible says there's none other name given among men whereby we must be saved. No other name under heaven. I mean, this He is the only way. Salvation is in Christ, not in baptism, not in the church, not in the denomination. It's not in good works. It is in Christ. But look at verse 7. We see salvation is for a purpose, that in the ages to come, wow, that He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Oh, I wish I had a, I wish I had an hour to talk about that one verse, that that glorious thought in the ages to come. You see God's got big plans. I mean far bigger than what you and I ever imagined. And how is it? How is it that someday that that God is going to be glorified to the fullest extent. Well, the Bible says that He is going to be glorified in His saints. Glorified in His saints. And this is what He's talking about. In that day when God comes to be glorified as a result of the saints. But, you know, how can, how can we, those of us that have failed so miserably, be able to glorify God so gloriously whenever we get to heaven? You know, I, I kind of think of it as being an unending testimonial in heaven. Amen. You know, I, I can picture in my mind God parading His people, as it were, down Hallelujah Avenue. And as they stop there at the throne and cast their crowns down at His feet, and all of a sudden the record is unveiled and they're their life, not their sins, that's all settled. But as it's revealed to everyone that here is a trophy of grace. This is what this person used to be, and this is the difference that Jesus made. You, you see, salvation is for a purpose. And if you go home and read all of chapter 1, you'll see that the reason Jesus died... The reason that we're saved is unto the glory of His grace. It's not even... Somebody says, oh, I'm saved because God loves me so much. Well, God does love you, but believe me, God's plan's bigger than that. It's for the glory of His grace. You say, God must have a big ego then. What's God up to? I'll tell you what God's up to. God is up to doing His work and fulfilling His plan that finally, at long last, that He'll be glorified in the manner that He should. That's that's our purpose in this life. That's God's purpose. Listen, think with me. 
Only God is able to be righteous and to say that my purpose is to glorify myself. Yeah, He's worthy. That's it right there, you see. God can do that. Why? Well, because He's perfect. He's perfect and we're not. If I said my purpose in life is to glorify David Stone, I've made a horrible mistake. I don't have any right to live my life for that purpose because there's nothing in me worthy of praise, but in Him, He's worthy. By the way, what are we going to be singing when we get up to heaven? Oh, you know, somebody says, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to sing, I want to, I want to cabin in the corner of glory land. Well, I don't want to be your next door neighbor then. I want something better than that. You know what? I can tell you what we're going to be singing in heaven. Revelation chapter 5. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Amen. Somebody says, well, I just don't like all, I don't like, I don't like all of those new contemporary praise courses. So repetitious. You, you might not like heaven all that much. Because they're going to be singing, worthy is the Lamb, and worthy is the Lamb. And when 10,000 years have just begun, we'll still be praising the Lamb of God forever and ever and throughout the endless ages. Amen. He's worthy. It's for a purpose. And then notice salvation is by grace. Verse number 8, for by grace are you saved. I sat in my office this morning and I thought, my land, dear Lord, how am I ever going to get beyond this, this, this one word, grace? <laughs> I mean, I can't think of any word in all of the Bible, you know, that, that, that gets our attention any quicker than the word grace, especially when you understand what grace is. It's, in, in fact, there's so many different ways to look at it. Even after I've tried to explain it, I scratch my head and realize I haven't even touched the hem of the garment. Somebody says, you know, it's God's riches at Christ's expense, and there's all kinds of different ways of expressing and trying to explain grace. It's God's unmerited love toward us. By the way, there is a gravity to grace. I don't know if you ever thought of this. Grace has a gravity to it. It's... It's like water. It always it, it grace has to flow from up to down. Amen. In God's grace, His unmerited favor, you, because we can't do anything to earn it. You can't merit His mercy. You can't do anything to earn God's grace. You can't make do anything to make yourself presentable. To God, to where God will say, all right, you've done that, now I will accept you. It's by grace. And notice, it's not by grace plus baptism. It's not by grace plus church membership. It's not by grace plus anything. In fact, the very second you add anything to grace, because I know what some people are thinking, I know what some people have said, oh, yeah, I believe that. By the way, all of the Catholics will tell you they believe this. Sure, we believe salvation is by grace, but... But, but what? Well, we believe it's by grace, but I mean, after all, you know, you've got to do this and that. And well, I kind of like the Bible way better. It's just by grace, but but God. There's no other buts about it. Just but God. By grace are you saved. And then notice not only that, but notice that it's through faith. 
by grace through faith. It's not of works, because if it was of works, we could boast, right? We could brag. You could get up to heaven and you could just skip down Hallelujah Avenue bragging about all the good things you did to get there. But you, you won't find anybody up there doing that. Because all, all of the folks in heaven realize how unworthy they are. It's by grace through faith. And, and again, the very minute you tried to add something to it, well, you know, but, but, you know, I still think that even though it's by grace and it's through faith that, that I need to do something else, you have destroyed the good news, the gospel. It's no longer the gospel. It's like Paul said to the Galatians about those who had preached another gospel that was not really the gospel at all. And that's what you're hearing in a lot of churches today, another gospel that's not the good news at all. It's not the message that will bring about salvation. But isn't it wonderful that salvation is by grace and it's through faith that all you have to do is just just believe, just trust that He will do what He promised. It, it, it couldn't, couldn't be any more simple than that. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to be a Hebrew scholar. You don't have to know the Greek language or anything. You can be like a little child. And the very moment that you truly believe in your heart on the Lord Jesus Christ, that you trust Him. And a lot of folks know about Him, but they've never really trusted Him. That's what happened to some folks here a few weeks ago, right? Isn't that what happened and, you know, they knew about the Lord. They joined the church and they were baptized and all of that. But they had never really trusted Christ. And let me tell you something. They had absolutely no peace, no confidence, no assurance until they started trusting. And now they have that blessed assurance that they've been reconciled to God. But, but then notice verse number 10. Salvation is unto good works. It's unto good works. In other words, it's not because of good works. It's unto good works. Whenever we've truly been saved, in other words, there's going to be a difference. Why? Because we are His workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. That's the argument that James was making because a lot of folks were saying, Oh, yeah, I believe. Yeah, I'm saved. And they never hit a lick. They never do anything. They continue to live in their rebellion against God. And James was pointing out the fact that I'll show you my faith by my works. And he's not contradicting what Paul said at all. If you expect anybody to believe that you've truly been born again, then there ought to be some difference in your life. It's from sin, and it is unto good works. And you see a lot of folks say, oh yeah, I'm really on the right track. I don't, I don't commit those sins anymore. And for them it's all about getting rid of the negative, but there's no positive. And isn't it amazing how we, we surmise, we get it in our mind that we're better than somebody else because, you know, we, 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 we don't drink. We're not even a social drinker. We don't, uh, we don't, well, you make your list. Because I'm not trying to embarrass anybody. But I'm telling you, there's a lot of folks that think in their mind, because they don't do those things, that they are in some way better than some people who do those things. 
By the way, I've known some church members that that were so faithful and worked so hard and would do so many good things, and yet they had a lot of excess baggage they shouldn't have had. Look, you can't you can't justify your wrong by doing a bunch of good stuff, right? You you can't do that. But I'm telling you, there are people. They're involved in church. They're faithful to church. But boy, they got some stuff they need to get rid of in their life. And it's so amazing that others who got rid of that stuff, but you couldn't, you couldn't get them to turn the water on if the building was burning down. They won't do anything. They won't teach. They won't sing. They won't do anything. Salvation is unto good works. If you're a child of God, you need to get involved in the work of the Lord. Make yourself available for God's purpose in this world. Reconcile to God or be rejected by God. That's, that's what this is all about. And the first leads to heaven. The second leads to hell. And your decision determines your destiny. He made us accepted in the Beloved, but until you trust Him, you are just as lost as anybody that you can possibly think of. Because, now listen, I'm through. Without grace, there is no pardon for your past. No pardon. And there's no power for the present. You'll never get out of your bondage to sin. And there's no prospect for your future. Because it's all going to be dark and gloomy and dreadful to be without Christ. I love what someone said about grace. They said, grace is God's gift of everything for nothing to those who don't deserve anything. That was me. That is me. Didn't deserve anything. And, And God said, although you don't deserve anything, I'm going to give you the very best that heaven has to offer. I'm going to give you me. And he came down to earth and died on the cross and paid my sin debt and said, now if you'll trust me, I will accept you. You see, salvation is not so much about you accepting Christ. It's about him accepting you. Do you know there's a verse in the Bible that says He did not accept them? There are those who made professions of faith and said, I'll follow you, but if He doesn't accept you, there's no salvation. Your salvation is based upon whether or not God will accept you. And the only way He will accept you is when you accept His Son as your Lord and your Savior. Have you? Will you? I hope so. Let's stand together. Father, how thankful we are for your amazing grace. How thankful we are that you've made a way that we who are so vile, so filthy, so sinful, how that we can be reconciled to you. And not only reconciled in the sense of being able to escape hell and and to get to come into heaven by the skin of our teeth, but to know that on that basis that you made us 
joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. We could never thank you enough for that. And Lord, I just pray today that that not one unsaved person would leave this building without first of all coming to know Christ as their personal Savior. And Lord, may those of us that have truly been saved, may we learn to really truly rejoice in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, for we beg it in His dear name. Amen. And